If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like us to continue putting out regular quality content, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can donate monthly and in return you will get rewards ranging from early interview viewings, bonus clips, credited as a producer and much more. Thank you and enjoy. Came back from that debt and went back to line them. Uh, the debts for the RF at the time were great. It was 30 days on, and then you'd go home. So you'd go out for 30 days, and you'd fly, well, not in the Telic one, but the later Herrick ones. You'd fly 25 to 26 of those 30 days. Mm-hmm. And then you'd come home, and come home for two or three months, four months, whatever, and then go back out again. The awesome. U.S. Air Force deployments tended to be anywhere from two to four months. Uh, That's a long all the time, time, isn't it? And you would fly every other day there. Mm-hmm. So you'd you know you'd be over there for 120 days and and you'd fly probably 60 times maybe probably about 50 times counting all the uh, admin and everything else you had to do. Frankly. But um, so yeah, did that. I uh, was on 24 Squadron uh, for a while. I uh, had a great time. They uh, quickly learned my interest slash obsession with history, and um, said that the the history room and the the historian or post in the squadron hadn't been filled in a while and needed sorting, and I volunteered to do that. So I was the historian on an RAF squadron, which always made it interesting when we had the uh, the old boys over. Um, <laughs> and it was a really good time. Really great people in the squadron. Um, really had a good time. And then 24 squadron, later then, the MOD decided to change 24 just to an OCU squadron. So they had I then moved over to 30 squadron, because 30 mm-hmm. squadron was staying the operational squadron. Yeah. 30 squadron was a fantastic time as well. And I did uh, most of my detachments to Afghanistan for Op Herrick with 30 Squadron. Um, but uh, it was also quite uh, interesting for me to be on 30 Squadron because, again, the historian side of it, I have all, I wrote a thesis on the Battle of Crete when I was a university undergrad, and 30 Squadron was in the Battle of Crete, and so it was quite um, special for me to be on 30 Squadron. And okay. I got to go out with uh, – I went with 30 Squadron out to Crete for one of the anniversary celebrations, the 70th in 2011. Okay. And um, – basically led the staff ride and, and went out there as a U.S. Air Force officer with the RAF delegation at a battlefield that the U.S. Air Force was involved in. <laughs> Very confusing. So, yeah, it made it uh, interesting. Much like it did in Op Herrick when I was in Afghanistan flying an RAF Herc and uh, British soldiers or other passengers would get on and look at me and I was obviously in a U.S. Air Force uniform and they'd look and I, I, one of the funnier missions I flew is I flew one of your MPs. Um, I can't remember his first name. Rick Gray? Mr. Gray, who's an MP oh, for Wiltshire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, I flew him, and he stepped on board the airplane, and he was confused. He said, I thought I was flying on an RAF Hercules. And I said, you are, sir. He said, oh, well, where's the RAF crew? And I said, this is the RAF crew. I'm the captain. And he's like, but you're in the American. I went, yes, I am. <laughs> so we did this for a few minutes, and uh, I had to explain to him that I was an exchange officer on the, oh, on the great, escort. Great story. But, uh, yeah, then I did uh, four detachments to Herrick with uh, 24 and 30 squadron. And um, that was interesting. I'd only done a couple missions to Afghanistan in the ENH model when I was at Pope. So I hadn't really had much experience. I'd had a lot of experience with Iraq, but not much in Afghanistan. And, and uh, then got quite a bit with Afghanistan. Um, uh, flew mostly at night in Afghanistan, um, as opposed to Iraq, where we flew night and day. Mm-hmm. And in Afghanistan, mostly went from, we were based at Kandahar, and we used to fly to Bastion, Kabul, Bagram, um, you name it. And she used to do that just nonstop, really. And you would do several sectors a night. 
So you might you might do a uh, quadruple run to Bastion. So you might go Kandahar, Bastion, Kandahar, Bastion, Kandahar, Bastion, Kandahar, Bastion, and then back to Kandahar. So and um, that would... without interrupting you, uh, Todd here, like yeah, how go... rewarding were these these missions? Because obviously you're in like yeah. live operations or theaters. That, that must have been yeah. quite amazing. It's extremely rewarding, um, challenging, uh, but uh, exciting. But also, <laughs> you know. Um, very rewarding. Um, it was always something. I always made it a point to walk down and, and see the passengers loading and the cargo and, and you know, chat with some of the passengers. And, you know, I mean, seeing some of these young kids, you know, who are only 18, 19, going off into, into a war zone yeah. um, and taking them in there. It was, it was obviously even more rewarding to bring them out, um, to see the happy looks on their faces when they were going home on yeah. R&R, but they were, they were going home um, permanently. It's difficult to talk about, but it could be a bit challenging in some respects too. When yeah. we got to, we had to do um, what the American Air Force, the U.S. Air Force, would call HR missions, human mm-hmm. remains, yeah. uh, which you would call a PABE, basically in the RAF, um, or repatriation, I should say. In, yeah, in the I can RAF imagine that's tough. Um, I did that quite a few times in Iraq. I only did it a few times in Afghanistan. Most of the time in Afghanistan, the RAF uh, would do it with C-17s and go straight out of Bastion yeah. back to the U.K. Um, but in Iraq, we did it a lot. Um, mm. And we, it was quite a somber occasion, as it should be. But um, we always made it a point as a crew to step out there and stand with the uh, soldiers and render a salute as the caskets oh, came really? up. Oh, really? That's great. That's great. Uh, uh, the caskets were always draped with the flag. And we always um, – you generally didn't carry anything else if you were picking the, the HR uh, mission up. Um, sometimes you did – you had to, but most of the time you just carried the HR. And mm. – um, we always treated it with the utmost of respect. And yeah. uh, it sounds silly to say, but I always, you know, it, it always rang home to me, like the cost of, of what was happening in those those uh, mm. wars, mm-hmm. um, seeing that. Um, even more difficult, and something I did more of with the RAF in Afghanistan was carrying wounded soldiers. Yeah. Carrying them from... Uh, uh, Bastion over to Kandahar, Kabul to uh, Kandahar, and seeing some of these lads who, you know, had quite severe injuries on a stretcher being brought on board the airplane. Um, We, I I don't know about the rest of the guys, I'm sure they did as well, but I always tried to make the landings and the flight itself as smooth as I could um, when they when they were on board as well, Uh, because most of them are strapped onto onto a stretcher and then either strapped onto a stanchion or onto the floor itself. Yeah. Um, And yeah. uh, Definitely one of the more memorable missions that I flew, but mm. you know, one of those more difficult ones to to you know reminisce about or or, or talk about. Course, but, um, yeah, yeah. well, in Iraq, so. I was flying the E model C-130, which most of them were 1960s vintage. So, and this was 2005 to about 2007. So they were already uh, 40 years old. Uh, the Herks were flying. Um, they even flew a B model that had been converted into an E model, and you wow, could tell it still it still had the forward uh, cargo door where it had been they had uh, <laughs> yeah. um, um, screwed it shut up on the front of the, the fuselage, wow. but they used to have a forward cargo door. Anyways, um, but yeah, so we had quite a few planes. I flew the H model as well there, which had better engines and better air conditioning on it. But um, but most of the time I was on E models. My squadron had E models, and uh, so I got about two thousand hours on E models. Wow. But um, but flying in Iraq, we did a lot of daytime missions, a lot of nighttime missions. It didn't matter, really. You just flew 24-7. Yeah. 
Um, and from a threat perspective, we the threat was generally higher there. Um, and at that period of time as well, uh, there was quite a bit of threats going on. Um, the I, you know, some guys got shot at a lot. Some guys didn't get shot at at all. Uh, some guys got shot at a few times. That's the category I'm in. Um, <laughs> but uh, and, you know, and a lot of times in the daytime, you weren't able to tell if you were being shot at either. Yeah. Because um, you, you can't see it in the daytime generally. At nighttime, you can see it very, very um, easily. But um, I only two times that I can think of that were really quite close. Uh, one was going into Balad or Ballad, as as the the, the British would say it. Um, and this one, I didn't actually see it, but my loadmaster did. Was we had some small arms fire go right by the left troop door as I was on short finals into oh, wow. Balad. Um, but again, the strengths of the Hurric, if we'd been hit by those small arms, unless it had hit somebody in the back, uh, AK-47 rounds wouldn't have done much. Just put some holes in the fuselage. Yeah. Um, but um, but that was interesting. And then but the one I did see, which was more memorable, was I was carrying the U.S. Army chief of staff of the army basically the that the head four-star general in charge of the army and um it had already been quite a memorable mission up to that point but we were taking him into baghdad and on short finals again there i saw two projectiles what i would classify as rockets fired up at us um there was a black hawk underneath us as well so they were either shooting at him or us or both who knows or maybe they thought they'd get two for one <laughs> but um they, the two rockets came up. I saw the two rockets coming up at me through the night vision goggles as well. So they were quite bright in my goggles. And, um, you know, you read about it all the time, you know, people's reactions, oh, were you scared or did you just carry on or whatnot? It was more just a surprise, really. Just yeah. it, it was a half a second of going, wow, that, they're really shooting at me. It's <laughs> um, actually happening, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's actually happening. But we, the, the rockets missed us. They missed the Blackhawk, both us and the Blackhawk. Um, did a few defensive maneuvers. I repositioned the airplane, landed on the other end of the runway. Um, it was quite challenging. It, it, the The runway lights weren't very bright. It was quite dark. We couldn't make out that end of the runway very well, but managed to get on the runway. Um, and the whole time, as soon as we pulled in parking, there was another helicopter waiting for the chief of staff of the Army, and he jumped right off, jumped on the helicopter, was completely unaware of everything that had happened. But um, but there was another Herc that was there. Uh, luckily, it wasn't me flying, but there was a guard Herc that was coming out of Mosul one night that uh, took a rocket into the number three engine, I want to say. Mm. And, and <clears throat> excuse me, Mosul sits in a little river valley, and uh, just south of the approach end of the runway, there is a ridge line that had a village on it, and that ridge line is where they would tend to shoot at us a lot from, and that's where that rocket was fired from. Now, this particular crew happened to be quite low at the time and quite close to that village, yeah. um, to the point that they either think that the rocket was a dud or it didn't have time to arm itself, so the rocket literally hit the engine and didn't explode. So it destroyed the engine just from the kinetic impact of hitting in the engine, yeah. but it didn't uh, explode, which was lucky for them. Um, so they shut down that engine, what was left of it, and um, they declared emergency and landed safely. But um, but yeah, Iraq was very interesting. I got uh, rocketed a few times. Uh, again, the most prominent one would have been Balad again. I don't know what it was about Balad, but uh, we always hated going to Balad. Um, <laughs> We were broke. The first time I got to fly an H model, which we were so excited to fly with the bigger engines and the better air conditioning, and we still broke at Balad. And um, we were getting our stuff off the airplane as a mortar round, I'd say, probably a small mortar round, landed about 40, 30 yards from our right wing tip. There's a big bang and flash bit, puff of smoke, and we're like, wow. wow. And again, that surprise of, is that really what I think it is? Yeah, it is. Oh, 
crap, we should get out of here. So we quickly threw our bags in the back of a vehicle and got off the, uh, the pan there um, and got into some hardened accommodation with our helmets on and everything. But I had one time in an RAFJ actually over in Kandahar. We were parked over on – we normally parked on one side of the airfield, but this night we had to park on the other side to drop off some uh, uh, NATO um, forces. I think it was uh, NATO passengers mm-hmm. um, and – ISAF. Sorry, I said NATO. ISAF is what I should have said. It was an ISAF mission, and uh, we're dropping off some ISAF cargo on the other side from where we normally park. And while we're sitting there dropping it, we saw another rocket hit the taxi where we w- where the taxiway where we would have been if we'd been taxiing back to the normal parking. I got uh, just just over three thousand hours on the Herc. Wow. Um, just over two thousand hours on the E model, and just under a thousand hours on the J, and then uh, about a hundred or so hours on the H's. So, not bad not bad at uh, all <laughs> all in about uh 12 years time that was mostly the first 12 years of my career awesome so uh do you have any hobbies hobbies yeah i i would say yes my wife would say obsessions as you can <laughs> tell from behind me um one of them would be military history yeah um i i read quite a bit I probably have way too many books and need to get rid of a few more. But um, but no, I like to collect aviation memorabilia, specifically um, unit patches, squadron patches, that kind of thing. Uh, I started that when I was a kid again as well. My dad was an Army helicopter pilot, and he gave me some of his old patches in a bread bag once. And uh, <laughs> as a kid, I just kept filling up that bread bag, and, and now I have uh, a few more bread bags than that. <laughs> so, but you know, I, I particularly like uh, military history uh, not just aviation as well. I, I study land and naval battles as well. Um, uh, I used to like to do a lot of hunting and fishing and shooting. Um, not so much here in the UK with the restrictions you guys have over here, but um, yeah. like spending a lot of time with my family, my wife and two kids. I'm not one of these guys that like to say, oh, I like to go running or riding my bike or anything like that. No, I, I, I <laughs> I'm the really same with you there. Like, I don't do anything anymore. like that. I used, to lo- I used to like to play football or soccer, as we'd say in America. Yeah. So I did that a lot, but... Um, I have played cricket. I wasn't quite very so. It wasn't very sober, so it was more enjoyable. But um, <laughs> um, but yeah. So that, that's probably probably about it on the hobby. Hobbies, so I like yeah. to do a lot of research. I've written some. I've started writing some uh, articles for magazines and um, um, reviews for books and that kind of thing. And uh, I don't know if I'd call it a hobby, but I'm training to be a teacher now here in the oh, UK. Awesome. Training to be. I'm getting my PGC my. What is that postgraduate compulsory education yeah. certificate for further education? So teaching mm-hmm. at the A level and college uh, mm-hmm. level. So teaching. So far, I've been teaching history and um, public services. Awesome. This could be. Uh, I don't know. This is going to be a difficult one, or it could be an easy one okay. for you, Todd. Favorite sure. aircraft you have flown? Oh, favorite aircraft I've flown in or flown on the controls? That would be flown on the controls. Good. I would say. Oh man, that's a good one. Um, you're gonna laugh. I probably I, the most fun to fly was the T-37, the Tweet. Really? Uh, the little twin jet aerobatic plane. Yeah, I mean you could that plane would spin like you would not believe, and the aerobatics on it was fantastic. And it has the it had the fastest G onset rate of any airplane in the Air Force at the time, including the F-16. Really? You you could, wow. could literally roll the wings 90 degrees and pop the stick, just jerk back on it really quick and hit. Six and a half G's instant. Mm. And um, yeah, many a student G locked themselves. Most of the students that were killed in the tweet were G lock incidents. Wow. And, um, Didn't know that. 
Yeah, when I was going through flying training, one of our fellow classmates even G-locked as instructor one day. But, um, but that was all right because nobody liked that instructor, including the other instructor. <laughs> he deserved it. <laughs> yeah. One aircraft you wish you could have flown? Oh, man, that's a tough question there. That's a really tough one. That's a really tough question. I, I would like eventually to pay an, an exorbitant amount of money to go fly in a Spitfire one day. That would be cool. Um, okay. But if it was a jet, it'd probably have to be the Phantom. I think the Phantom would have been a, a real treat to fly in. Um, it, you know, I mean, I've, I've got other obscure ones. The F-101 Voodoo would have been incredible as well. Oh, it's a beautiful but, aircraft. Um, I love that aircraft. Yeah, or or an RA-5C Vigilante or something Vigilante, like that would have been yeah. great. Or, or an F-111. I, I did have an instructor when I was in Tweets who flew F-111s. Oh, really? About it, and he got to actually eject out of a F-111 and didn't have a very good experience. So, <laughs> but oh, um, it has the pod, doesn't it? The kind of yeah, the whole capsule. Yeah. Yeah, the, capsule, the whole cockpit yeah. that as a capsule, and mm-hmm. uh, the navigator initiated the ejection before he was ready. So, Todd, uh, this is from J uh, Joe Kunzler. Sorry, um, Todd, okay. how was it like taking the C one hundred and thirty down low? Oh, incredible! The the, the C one hundred and thirty really does well in the low level environment. Um, it was a lot of fun. It really was, and that, to be honest, that was probably the most fun you could have in the C one hundred and thirty. Was flying day low level, um, probably. Some of the great things I got to do, I, I flew up in the fjords in Norway, uh, in two and three ship formations, in broad, you know, in, in amazing weather. Um, you can really do some impressive things with this airplane. Um, the maneuverability down low is incredible. Um, it's it's definitely a better ride up front than it is in the back during those low <laughs> levels. It's extremely bumpy and yeah, and uh, unpleasant for the paratroopers or whoever's riding in the back. But but. Um, down low level, it's it's an incredible airplane. You can really use the terrain. You can hide your uh, Hercules very easily in the terrain. Um, yeah, really good, especially in the J too. You got loads of power in the J as well. Um, yeah, it was uh, in the low level environment. The airplane does really well. Mm-hmm. And this is like the person wanting to stay anonymous, so I'm going to keep them anonymous, obviously. Uh, okay. Which yeah. model of Hercules did you enjoy flying the most? Oh man, that's a tough one actually for me. Yeah. Because <laughs> the J was incredible for all the uh, technology and the heads-up display was amazing and the engines were fantastic. Um, but the E model was also great in that it was all stick and rudder flying. Um, it was very little in the J. You fly on the autopilot a lot in the J for a lot of the uh, portions of a mission. In the E model, you rarely fly on the E on the autopilot. You only flew the autopilot when you were up at cruise and just didn't want to keep flying straight and level. And holding mm-hmm. it straight and level um and so for example in the e model you would fly all the approaches by hand in the j model you would fly most of the approaches on the autopilot oh really so wow. so from a flying standpoint the e model was a lot more fun and the h model as well to fly it was more there was no heads-up display um all the instruments were analog most of them we had a, a, a bit of technology uh, we had a uh, flight management system and we had a um, digital uh, vertical velocity indicator with TCAS on it, but the rest of it was all um, analog. Mm. So, and to the point, I always like to throw out there too, some of the older equipment that was on the E model, we had some of the autopilots on some of the older E models were taken off the B-29. No way. Yeah, and some of the, uh, and most of the ADFs, the Automatic Direction Finder, um, which is a navigation instrument, were the exact same ones as on the C-47. Uh, with what we call the little wheel, the little coffee grinder, where you had to, to tune the station yeah. down to null mm-hmm. position to get the air needle to point at the right signal. Wow. Um, 
so yeah, there was uh, there was some uh, definitely nostalgic uh, moments or technology on the airplane. So, and the last ahead. one again, uh, anonymous. Uh, we want to say anonymous here. Um, what was it like working with a large crew on the Herc? It was a lot of fun. It really was because, um, especially that was another advantage of the Herc is uh, you, you know you go on TDYs or you go on a, a trip or an exercise somewhere. And or on a detachment, and you fly with the same crew all the time, yeah. Um, for those exercises or for that deployment, um, and it was like going around with you know a group of your best mates, uh, especially if you were doing a trip, I don't know, across Europe or something like that. You know, you'd be one night you'd be in uh, Presswick, and the next night you'd you'd be in uh, Ramstein, and the next night you'd be down in uh, Crete at Suda Bay. Yeah. And so you know, before you went into crew rest, you'd go downtown with you know your crew and have dinner and drinks and. You know, it was it was a lot of fun, actually. And it was you also had that sense of teamwork um, and you, you could rely upon each other as well. Yeah. Uh, and the same in the J, but just generally the crews would be a bit smaller in the J. So you might have a three man crew or a four man crew um, mm-hmm. in the J. So but uh, but working with a big and when I say big crew, it's not nearly as big a crew as, say, like an AWACS where you might have, I don't know, 22 guys in the back yeah. and five up front. So, mm-hmm. um but yeah, it was it was a whole lot of fun actually. You know, it's um, I, I flew with some amazing uh, crew members and and really was fortunate in flying with a, a lot of good crews and, and maintainers as well. Uh, I can't say enough about the maintainers. Um, yeah, I think especially on the E model Hercs, the 1960s models Hercs, the the work that they did to keep those planes flying, especially out on deployments. I mean, even in the 1960s E models, we were we had mission capable rates of. 96 to 97 98 percent uh mission capable um and back home it would go down but it would still be you know 75 percent or so um and the same with the j the j you know there was a lot of the the maintenance guys that worked on the j and it's just a different skill set they they would still Mm -hmm. do incredible work but have to plug in different laptops and and read cards on the airplane to see what Mm -hmm. was the fault and and replace it but you could do so many things with the herc that was just incredible um Another one short story real quick is you in the e, old E model or H model, you can do what's called a windmill taxi start, which means that if, if the starter in the engine doesn't work, then to get enough air blowing over the – I'm not – my engineer buddies will crucify me for not explaining it correctly. <laughs> but but basically, you can jumpstart the engine without the starter. Really? What you do is you, so when the engine's stopped, you know when it's not moving, you take the starter out, pull and pat it, as they say, and then you turn the blades so that they're on the cuff. So they're at the right, uh, the perfect angle, and then you go rolling down the runway with uh, two, the two symmetrical engines up at takeoff power, wow. and you get up to about 80 knots or so, and that that relative wind eventually start turning the prop over on the the dead engine, and eventually it kickstarts it and it starts going. Never heard of and, that before. Wow. Well, and then fantastic. you can pull into parking, upload everybody again, and take off and get out of somewhere. And I used that once, in fact, getting out of Kandahar once, in an E model. <laughs> And you can also do it a different way. You can have another similar airplane, use preferably another Herc, but you could do it with another prop airplane, big plane. But you have another Herc pull in front of you, and the wind coming off of his engines could start that engine as well. That's now, the J model can't do it because of the way that the prop and the, and the engine are connected in the J. But, um, but in the E and H model, you could do that. So that was, again, some of the cool things you could do. So, Todd, where can we find you online? Yeah, um, well, I mean, I, I'm on Facebook, um, but also uh, in particular, I'm on several Facebook groups. Uh, one in particular is the Aviation Enthusiast Book Club. Um, also, I'm on your page as well, the Air Crew Interview. Um, 
also on the Flying Graphics uh, Facebook page, which uh, for Scott Sullivan, I am wearing one of his C-130 Hercules shirts out there. Brilliant. Show off my, uh, obviously, incredible physique there. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I've, I, I do have an online presence. I'm more than happy to answer questions. Um, but like I said, I, I probably won't accept phone requests unless I know you. But uh, be more than uh, will, more than happy to answer questions on any of those groups or anything like that as well. I, I'd also just like to say too, um, uh, I, as you mentioned earlier, I'm still here in the UK. I've settled here in the UK, um, and one of the most endearing experiences was on my exchange on the last dining in at Lynham. I met my wife, so and my wife, who she is still serving in the Royal Air Force, so. She always swore she'd never marry a pilot, and I always swore I'd never marry an adminer, and uh, somehow that that's happened. But um, but I just wanted to say that that was a, another bonus from my exchange uh, with the RAF. So. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you've had yeah a brilliant career, Todd, and uh, you're now settled in the UK. And yeah, uh, sounds like you're going to have a, a great future with your your wife and your two kids. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Well, Todd, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on the show and talk about the Hercules. You've been a great guest, so I just want to thank you very much for giving a bit of your time up. Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. I'm more than happy to answer any questions in the future as well on the C-130 or my career. Um, I also spent almost five years working in a NATO headquarters over here as well, so I can talk all about working with the Army and the, and the NATO standpoint as well. Um, but, uh, yeah... Um, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. It really has. Mm-hmm.